Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good. Hey, good to uh, see all of you. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24 this morning. And uh, while you're turning there, I need to address the obvious right now, and it's this. Um, apparently, I'm a glasses guy now. Um, this is a new development in my life, and um, I probably haven't gotten my eyes checked since elementary school. Um, you know, when like they make the class go through that kind of standardized testing. And I'd kind of notice, man, I'm starting to get headaches at night and it feels like my eyes are straining. So I was like, Mayor, I think I need to go get my eyes checked. So on Monday, on Valentine's Day, I went and got my eyes done. And you go into the room and you meet with the doctor and you do all those tests, right? You got to read all the letters on the different lines. They're like, hey, do you see the dot on this eye? Do you see the dot on this eye? They do all the testing. And when it was done, I'm like, so um, what, how, how did I do, doc? And she goes, well, the good news is you're still legal to drive. And I'm like, that's, that's not great. And I'm like, so I need glasses, huh? And she's like, yeah, you definitely need glasses. So it takes a couple hours for them to fit the prescription. So I came back later that day, got my glasses, and I put them on, and I was driving home. And I was like, man, I can actually read the license plate of the car in front of me again. Like, this is amazing. Like, it's just wild how it goes slowly over time, and you don't notice it uh, until it's changed. And um, so if you want to know how Valentine's Day went at our home, at the Wasen home, I got glasses, Mary found out she had shingles, and Judah was on the floor in our room all night running a 102 temp. So here's what I would say. Life comes at you fast in your mid-30s. I'm learning that. And uh, I sent a picture to my mom because she wanted to see what the glasses looked like. And her comment was, oh, they look great. You remind me just of your grandpa. <laughs> like, it's like not helping, mom, right? This is not what I was hoping for on my 35th uh, Valentine's Day. So hopefully your day was better than ours. But in a lot of ways, um, it was fitting because this week what we're talking about is change. And uh, the truth is life is full of change, isn't it? And some of it is absolutely inevitable right? You get older, you change, your kids get older, they change, the nature of the relationship you have with them change. I've heard this saying about marriage is what makes marriage difficult is when a, a husband and wife get married, you see the wife believes she can change her husband and the husband believes that his wife will never ever change, right? Causes all sorts of conflict in the marriage, but change is inevitable. There's the change that just happens, maybe you change jobs, maybe you change where you live, um, but there's also the change that's a different kind of change, and that's the change that needs to happen in our life. It's the change we call transformation, that the power of God in our life produces a result. It's a transformed life, and this is what Paul is going to talk about this morning, the fact that you and I need to change, and there's a way that change takes place. And um, a couple, uh, couple weeks ago, I had an early mor uh, morning meeting at church, and uh, my uh, driveway. It's, a, it's on a little bit of a hill, and I was getting up super early. It was before 6 a.m., and uh, I didn't realize it, but there was some black ice at the end of my driveway. So I'm going down my driveway, and all of a sudden I start to slide. And I'm doing my best to control it. I'm trying to brake. I'm trying to navigate it, but my car does that 90-degree kind of uh, spin out, and all of a sudden I land at the bottom of my driveway. And I'm like, well, that wasn't too bad. And then I go to hit the gas to move, and all of a sudden I'm not moving. I'm stuck. Right? How many Michiganders have been stuck in the snow before, right? Can we raise our hands proudly, right? It's a thing up here. And by the way, isn't that such a defeated feeling when you hit the gas and your car doesn't move? 
and you're like, oh no, I'm in trouble. I can't fix this myself. And you realize you're stuck. Well, the reason I'm excited for this message this morning is I think if we could be honest with ourselves, there's a lot of us in here who we feel stuck this morning. There's things in our life that we don't like about us. There's things that we are doing that we know aren't honoring to the Lord. And it's like, man, I hate these things, but I don't know how to get past them. And I just feel stuck in my walk with Christ. It doesn't feel like I'm growing, like I'm being transformed, but I just feel stuck. Maybe there's some of you here and you're like, man, I just feel so far away from the Lord. And when I think of Jesus, he is this very distant figure that lived a long time ago and is far away. I do not feel his presence in my life. I do not feel his power day in and day out. And I'm starting to wonder, am I even saved? Because I just feel stuck. And if you've ever felt like that, or if you're feeling like that today, I think God has a powerful word for us and I'm excited about what he wants to do in our hearts. So again, open up to Ephesians 4, and I want to draw your attention back to verse 1. It says this, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And if you were with us last week, you know that what he means when he says that we're called to walk in a manner worthy, it means that we're to grow in maturity. So, So the rest of Ephesians, he's laying out kind of this path towards maturity in Christ. Now jump down to verse 17. He says this, he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So Paul's saying is is that part of maturity is, is that you can't walk as the Gentiles do. But here's what's amazing. He's writing to a group of Gentiles. This was a Gentile church. So what he's saying is, is if you're going to grow up in Christ, you can't walk like everyone else in your life and in your city walks. You can't live the same way as them. And you can't live how you have been living. There has to be transformation and change. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning, and this is what we get right, is that we know we need to change. And, and church, look at me. We know this about ourselves, Right? Like, I don't think I have to convince anyone when I'm like, man, there's things in our life that are unhealthy, that don't honor the Lord, that need to change. No one would say they're hitting or they're batting a thousand percent. And actually, I think one of our biggest problems is we tend to minimize all of Christianity simply into a list of things that we need to change. I think we make what needs to change about us in some ways too big of a deal. Like, here's an example. Like, I will meet someone and, and I'll be like, hey, how's your relationship with the Lord going? And guess what they do? They just give me their laundry list of everything in their life that needs to change. I'm like, how are you doing? I'm drinking too much and I'm losing my temper with my kids and my marriage is on the rocks and I have a bad attitude at work. And they think when I'm asking, hey, how are you doing or how's your relationship with the Lord? It's just a list of things that need to change. And that's not what Christianity was meant to be. It's meant to be that we know God and his spirit dwells within us and he gives us peace and hope and joy and confidence and then produces transformation as we can boil it down to simply a list of what we need to change. But we know we need to. James says that faith without works is dead, right? That we actually don't have a faith if it's leading to no change at all in our lives. And by the way, here's what I would argue too. This isn't just a Christian phenomenon. Like, most people realize that they need to change. That's why the self-help industry is billions and billions of dollars. It's why people will spend tens of thousands of dollars to fly to a yoga conference in Indonesia because they think that's going to be the thing that fixes them. 
that brings in their life what they're missing, that brings the change that they want to find. One of the universal effects of sin is that we are keenly aware that there is brokenness inside of us. And so what Paul's going to do now in verse 18 is he's going to describe the Gentiles and what we need to walk away from. He says this, he says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, to practice every kind of impurity. All right, so he's describing this Gentile walk that we need to be transformed from. And here's the point he's trying to make. It's this, it's that our minds drive our actions. That, that part of being transformed is we actually need to change our minds and how we think. Look at all of the references in these verses that Paul talks about our mind, right? In verse 17, the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, their ignorance, their hardness of heart, their callous. All of these are direct references to our mind and how we think. Another phrase that really jumped out to me in these verses is the phrase alienated from the life of God. And if you take notes in your Bible, just underline that because I think that's a really powerful statement. Here's why. Um, I heard a pastor explain it this way. Um, did you know that God isn't just the creator of the world, but he's the creator of life itself? Like when we think of God as creator, do we think of that? I, I don't think we do. Like we think of God creating. He created us and he created mountains and the fish and, and the animals and the stars. Like he created everything, but it doesn't stop there. He created the experience of being alive. He created the author of life. So when we rebel against God, and we're saying, God, I don't want relationship with you. I don't want anything to do with you. I want to live life on my own terms. We're actually divorcing ourselves from the very way that life was supposed to be lived. That's what Paul's saying is saying they've darkened their minds and they've divorced themselves from the meaning of life itself because God is the author of life. Throw up the next slide. This is a very common saying we have at Harvest. It's this, you do what you do and you feel what you feel because you think what you think. This is a biblical phrase. And what it means is that our minds drive our actions. And what Paul's saying is, is that they've rejected God in their minds. They said, God, I'm not going to glorify you. I'm not going to live for you. I'm going to live for my own passions and pleasures. And that has led to a spiral of sin that we need to walk away from. And by the way, this can play out in a million of ways. Like, like here's an example of how our minds transform our actions. Um, if you think that you're a bad student, right? I, I have dealt with, I've been in a, a high school pastor. I've dealt with tons of high school kids. If you think you're a bad student and you think I'm never gonna get good grades, I'm never gonna go to college, I, I'm just not an academic, all of this is a waste of my time. Um, is that gonna impact how you feel about school when your alarm goes off at six in the morning? Yeah. Right, Jeremy, you're a teacher, right? It probably will, right? You're not gonna be excited when you wake up. You're going to be like, man, do I have to go? I'm not good. This is going to be a miserable day. Is that going to impact how you perform in school? It totally is. You're not going to want to be there. You're going to have a bad attitude. You're going to think it's worthless. Your mind transforms your feelings, transforms your actions. Here's another one. What if you've convinced yourself that you married the wrong person? Right? I made a mistake. I should have married my high school sweetheart. We don't, me and my spouse, we don't fit. We're not a good match. I shouldn't have married that person. Is that going to transform how you feel about your spouse? It totally will, right? 
well, this was a mistake and we never should have been married. And, and I don't know why I'm married. I'm unhappy in this relationship. Is that going to transform how you treat them and, and where you go to look for joy and fulfillment and all of those things? Yeah, it probably will. Like here's one. I believe what you think about church will impact your experience of going to church. Like if you came here this morning and your mindset was, man, God is so faithful and he's good and he's kind and he sustains me and I'm created to glorify and worship Jesus. So this morning I get to gather together with the family of God. I get to lift his name up and then his spirit is alive in my heart and his word is alive and he's going to speak to me and he wants to transform my life even this morning. I bet that's going to produce a different experience than if you came into this place being like, man, I'm really tired. And I've had a long weekend and I'm stressed out about what's going on at work. I don't know if I have time for this, right? Your mind transforms how you feel. It transforms your thoughts. Second Corinthians 10, five says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see what he's saying? He's saying the battleground is in your mind. Can I give you a free piece of advice? One of the most important questions I've found for my life that, that's been helpful for me is I ask people in my life every single week, hey, am I thinking about this situation right? If there's a tension point in my life, if there's something I'm stressed about or frustrated about, I'll get with people that I trust and I'll be like, here's what's going, am I crazy? Am I thinking about this right? Because I know if my thinking is off, it's going to impact my feelings. My feelings will be off and my actions will be off. I want to surround myself with counselors who will speak in and say, yeah, Cal, you are thinking right about this. Or no, you've missed this part. You need to change your mind. All right, so here's the part we get wrong. If we get right that we know we need to change and our mind drives our actions, what we get wrong is how we think that change happens. How we think that change happens. We understand we need to change, but we go about it the wrong ways. And what I want to do is I want to list out two kind of bad ways that we try to live out Christian change. Here's the first. Throw up the next slide. The first is we just try to rely on willpower. I, I'm just going to do it myself, and I'm strong enough, and, and maybe you have this vision of a future you that, that is way better than you are now. And as philosophers throughout history would say, is, is all of us have these bad desires that are unhealthy, unhelpful, and cause us pain. And we have these good desires that make us better, that are good for us, that are helpful. And we think, man, I've just got to lean into the good and I've got to push away the bad. And our whole life is, it's like, all right, I've got my list and I'm going to get up earlier in the morning and I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to work out and I'm just going to, to make this happen on our own. We know that we're called to be transformed as Christians, but we think it's on our shoulders to make it happen. And by the way, this is something that the early church, um, even they had wrong. You know, there's stories of monks who took a vow of celibacy, meaning they'd never get married and that they'd never have sex. And uh, they would be walking through their village or their town and they would see a beautiful woman and they would start to have lustful thoughts about that woman. And what they would do is, is when those thoughts started to come, they would sprint towards the nearest thorn bush and throw themselves into it. They're like, I'm just going to make these thoughts go away by causing myself physical pain. I'm just going to make it happen on my own. But the problem is, is when you do that, it leads to exhaustion and defeat. Willpower alone doesn't work, and it leaves many Christians just frustrated. And I've hung out and spent time with so many Christians who have taken this call to be transformed 
made it all about themselves, put all of the weight on their shoulders, and they quit Jesus before they've ever even tried him because it was all about self-improvement and they didn't tap into the power of Christ. The second way we do is, is maybe we just give in to our desires, right? And it's like, okay, maybe the problem isn't that we need to change. Maybe the problem is we're just not being true enough to ourselves, And we just got to lean into what makes us happy. Be true to ourselves. Don't worry about how that impacts your kids or your spouse or those you love. Just be true to you and chase down your happiness at all costs. This is the grand experiment of secular humanism, and our country has been on this journey for about 60 years, and the results are coming back, and they're not great, right? We are, I've talked about this so much in our worldview series over the fall, but we're more medicated, we're more depressed, we're more anxious, we're more miserable and suicidal as a nation than we ever have been. And I love what that pastor said that I referenced earlier. It's like we have divorced ourselves from the author of life. We've said, God, we're not going to do it your way. We're going to do it our own, and we can't figure out why this thing called life isn't producing the results that we want. Okay, but let's look at the good news. Look at verse 20. He says this. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, here's the fourth thing we see, church, is that Christian transformation happens when we allow Jesus to make us a new people. We need to allow Jesus to make us a new people. Look at verse 20 again. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And again, if you take notes, just underline that word Jesus, because Paul does something amazing here. Do you know that in the book of Ephesians, Paul references Jesus over 50 times? I think the exact number is 56. He loves talking about Jesus, but there's only one time he calls him by his first name, and it's right here. He calls him Savior, he calls him Lord, he calls him King. But here he's telling the Ephesians, he goes, remember Jesus the person. He's being as personal as he can about Jesus. And he's like, you have seen Jesus and you've been taught in him and your hope and truth and transformation lies in who Jesus was. He's getting as personal as he can. And look what he says. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you see that language he's using? He's not using become better or or, or grow. He says, put off your old and put on your new. He's saying it's not about becoming better. It's about becoming new. And, And here's what you need to understand. If we're going to understand how Christian transformation happens, we need to understand what Jesus came to do. Um, In Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on this long rant, and what he does is he compares Jesus to Adam. And he's like, Adam was the first man, and he's the father of the human race. And he calls Jesus the second Adam, and he says Jesus came to create a new race. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22 says this. He says, for as by a man came death... By a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Here's what he's saying. He's saying when God created the world, he created everything. Then he set Adam and Eve in the garden as God's representatives to the world. 
They were created in the image of God. They're the apex of creation, and they were created to know, love, worship God, and represent God to the rest of creation. But sin destroyed that, right? The wages of sin is death, that sin separates us from the love of God. So Adam failed his calling, and we all carry that effect of sin. But he says, then God sent Jesus, and Jesus is the second Adam because he succeeded where Adam failed. He did live a perfect life. He never once chose himself over God, and he paid the penalty of our sin. But it doesn't stop there. You see, Jesus is the father of this new race that is not defined by color of skin or region of the world or language that you speak, but it's defined by being once again alive to God that the Spirit of God dwells in us, that we know our Creator, that we love Him and worship Him, and we once again represent God to the rest of the world. That's why he's saying, listen, put off the old. You're a new creation. You're not under the banner of sin and Adam anymore. You're under the banner of Jesus Christ. Amen? Like, that's a powerful statement. And he also gives us the perfect vision, Jesus does, of what this life looks like. Paul's saying, remember Jesus. Remember how he lived. Remember what he lived for, how he treated people, how he prayed. Jesus spent three years giving us a picture of what a life lived for God looks like. Okay, so here's the question. How does this transformation happen? It's this. We need to simply allow Jesus to transform us and to make us new. We need to get close to Jesus. Jesus talks about this in John 15. He says this. He says, I am the vine. Listen to this. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. That's transformation. That's change. Then he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch that withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." He's saying the key to bearing fruit is to abide in Christ. Well, what does it mean to abide? It means to hold on to, to be fixed to, to stay near. You know, it's interesting. Um, One of the primary ways that Jesus and the Bible talk about what our relationship with Christ looks like is that we are the bride and Jesus is the groom. He uses the picture of marriage. And, and, And here's why. It really makes a lot of sense. Um, Jeremy and Andrea, I'll I'll use you guys as an example, right? When you got married, your lives changed, right? Your perspectives changed. When Jeremy got married, hopefully, and and I know this about Jeremy, but it, it was no longer what does Jeremy want out of life? It's what do we want out of life? It's not what are Jeremy's hopes and dreams and desires. What's our family's hopes and dreams and desires? It changes your view of reality. You start looking through life through the lens of it's not just me anymore, but it's our family. It's me and Andrea. It's us together. Okay, well, the same thing happens when we abide in Jesus. We no longer look through life through the lens of what do I want, what will make me happy, what will glorify myself. It's no, how can I honor Jesus in my life? How can I give glory to him when I'm at work or when I'm with my friends? How does my family live a life that's centered around Jesus? He fundamentally changes our mind and how we think about the way life works. Um, Here's the truth, church. There's no silver bullet in Christianity. And man, I wish there was. 
Like there'll be times where I'll meet with people and they're going through a really difficult circumstance and I just wish I could be like, just pray this prayer or take these three steps and everything's gonna change and get better. It doesn't really work like that, but here's what I know what works. It's us drawing near and holding on to Jesus through the difficulties of life and watching him transform how we think and how we view the world and make us new people. Here's the big idea, it's this. It's if you believe that Christian transformation equals becoming a better person, you're missing it. If you believe that all we are doing here is trying to become a better version of ourselves, you're missing it. Jesus wants to make us alive. He wants to make us new. He wants something way bigger for us than we often want for ourselves. I had a conversation with a pastor friend of mine a, a few years ago, and, and he said, hey, Cal, you realize people don't really change. He goes, in fact, I would argue that people really only get 10% better or worse than their parents, right? You got your parents, they kind of define your life, and you might be 10% better or you might be 10% worse, but people are just kind of going to be who they are. And I was like, I fundamentally reject that. Because Jesus didn't came to make us better or worse. He came to make us alive. And we see dramatic life transformation all throughout this church and all throughout Scripture. Think of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a selfish, greedy traitor. And guess what he did? He spent time with Jesus. And then he's like, I'm giving away half of everything I own. And anything I've defrauded anyone from, I'm going to repay them and repay them with interest. It fundamentally changed who he was. We have uh, some close friends of ours, and about six months ago, um, they just entered a really difficult season of life. Um, you ever have just those moments where it, sounds, where it seems like every angle you're getting hit at and things are just going wrong from everywhere? That was them. And they had job issues, they had family issues, they had health issues, like it was just coming at them. And we got together with them while they were in the middle of the storm, and we were like, hey, how are you guys doing? And the wife looked at me and she says, Cal, we're actually doing a lot better. And she goes, I can hear Jesus again. And, and that surprised me. I'm like, explain what you mean by that. And, and she goes, well, when all of this was happening, I was bitter and I was frustrated and I was just trying to keep my head above water. But over the past few weeks, I've really set aside time to get close to Jesus and to be in his word. And I'm listening to only worship music because that helps take my thoughts captive. And she's like, I can hear Jesus again. And he's giving me hope and he's changing how I'm viewing my relationships and he's giving me joy. And it's like, we're in a hard life circumstance, but I can hear Jesus and he's transforming us through the process. And I'm like, that's someone who gets it. All right, here's the last thing we're going to see. It's this. It's that lives transformed by Jesus will always be countercultural. Lives transformed by Jesus will always be countercultural. In Romans 12, 2, it says this. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right, look up again at verse 17. Right, doesn't Paul say, no, don't walk in the same way that the Gentiles do? And I love this word picture he's using. It's this idea of walking. And what Paul's saying is, is there's this path that is the path of the world and of the Gentiles, and that's the way they're following. And there's a new path, which is in the way of Jesus. And, and to live a transformed life means we follow this path. And so what that means is, by definition, to live for Christ is always going to be countercultural. And so what I want to do is I close this message. I was like, what are some ways that we can live counterculturally and, and be transformed by Christ? But part of the truth is, like, I'm hesitant to give this to you because I don't want it to become a checklist. 
I don't want us to go back into the same patterns of making us all about ourselves. So I tried to find three things that can only happen when we abide in Jesus and, and something we can't do on our own. So let's do this. Let's look at three Christ-driven countercultural moves we can make this week. Here's the first. Um, we can put off selfishness and we can put on humility and generosity. Right? We've hit on this so much in our worldview series, but we live in a culture today where selfishness, it's not even that it's viewed as a bad thing anymore, it's actually a virtue. Like, we live in a world today that if you are selfish, you are the hero. Be true to yourself, do what you want, it's all about you. Um, how many of y'all watched the Super Bowl uh, last weekend? Raise your hand. I'm, you're not going to get in trouble, I promise. Yep, I watched the Super Bowl. Um, real quick, straw poll, how'd you like the commercials, good or bad, thumbs up or thumbs down? Right, mostly thumbs down. It's been pretty consistent across all the campuses this weekend. Here, here's what bugged me about the commercials this year. Did it seem like every other commercial was either for cryptocurrency or gambling? Yeah. It was like cryptocurrency, sports gambling, cryptocurrency, draft kings, crypto draft, crypto gambling. And, and I was like, what a kind of just telling um, picture of where our society is. And listen, here's the thing. I'm not out on cryptocurrency. If you invest in crypto, I, I, I don't care at all, you know, all the power to you. Here's my problem with crypto. I've had like 15 smart people try to explain it to me, and I still can't understand it. I don't think anyone can. So, so like the idea is like, here, just invest your money in this thing that we promise you will work that no one can understand. What could possibly go wrong? And I'm like, it just feels sketchy to me, right? So there's that. And it's like, here, put your money in this, you'll get rich. Gambling, right? We, we've had this thing where sports gambling's become legal in the past few years. And there's been this arms race in every state who can make it legal because the states want tax dollars. So gambling's legal everywhere now, and it's, hey, go to this sports book, you can gamble here, you can gamble right on your mobile phone, and what's missed in the conversation is, is maybe there was a reason why gambling was illegal, because it devastates lives and families, right? It's like we get these commercials, it's like, gamble here, gamble here, bet on this, bet on this, betting is awesome, it's the greatest thing ever. By the way, if you have a gambling addiction, please call 1-800-GAMBLER, you know what I mean, we'll you can talk to someone. It's like, it's so minimized the devastating effects and it's like elevated to this thing everyone should be doing. And what it just shows is that we just live in a society that's like, just do what's best for you. Get rich quick. Get rich without working. Like just what, what can I consume? And in church, if I could be transparent and honest with you, I know the way I'm wired in my heart is it's very, very easy for me to just make things about me. And if I'm living out of the flesh, then I'm going to go to work and just be like, what's on my checklist? What do I need to do? Let me get after my thing. So what I need to do is, is I need to say, all right, what does humility look like? What does actually elevating others as more important as myself look like for me practically day in and day out? What does being generous towards others with the things I've been given by God look like? And so for me, sometimes that's just going into someone's office for 15 minutes. Hey, how can I pray for you? How's life going? How's ministry? How's family? Just trying to be an encouragement, not just thinking about myself, but just engaging into the lives of others. For me, another practical way, when I go to the coffee shop, I try not to just get a coffee for myself, but I spend the extra four bucks and get two more cups of coffee and bring it to a coworker, just trying to bless their day. Like if you want to truly live counterculturally for Christ, here's the challenge I have for you. Just wake up every day this morning and think, how can I actually be a tangible blessing to someone else that I come in contact with today? Right? Christianity frees us from the prison that is ourselves and causes us to love and serve others. Here's the next one. I need to put off bitterness and slander and put on kindness and forgiveness. 
couple weeks ago, we had a house project that was going on. Mary was kind of building out a homework station for our kids. So we had some guys in and they were moving and shelving. And it was interesting. It was on a Monday, so I was home. Monday's our off day, so I was there. And as we were kind of hanging out with them, I was listening to them as they talked, which I get is kind of creepy, but it's my house, my rules. It is what it is. Um, And I was just blown away. They spent a hour just trashing another guy in their company. He's so lazy. He doesn't work hard. He's dumb. I'm never going to stay at this company. If he gets elevated, he tries to game the system. Like, they were just ripping on another guy in their company. And, And... It made me think, you know, I think one of the most difficult things that we can do, I think one of the hardest commands that Jesus gives us is to love your enemies and bless those who curse you. And and here's why. Um, Mary, I'll use you as an example. If someone's so mad at you that they're cursing you, are they more likely doing it to your face or behind your back? Yeah, it happens behind our back, right? Like very few people are bold enough to really go at you individually, but what happens is they talk bad about you to everyone else. So a lot of times what it means to love your enemies and bless those who curse you is choosing to speak kindly and graciously about someone who you know is slamming you in the background. It's choosing in the moment of being sinned against to say, I'm not going to swing back, I'm not going to throw mud, but I am going to turn the other cheek and I'm going to speak good about them even though I know it's not being reciprocated in church. That is something that I don't believe is possible for us to do unless we're close to Jesus and we're like, look what he did when he was reviled. Look what he did for us when we were his enemies. Look how he was patient and gracious and kind. Like we don't have the gear to love our enemies if we're not rooted to Jesus. We just don't. Then here's the last one. We need to put off relativism and put on conviction and truth. Put off relativism and put on conviction and truth. You know what I mean by relativism, right? Like everything's relative. There is no absolute truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. Let's just do what makes each other happy and and, and everything's relative. Well, Christianity rejects that. In Christianity, there is a God who's ruling and reigning and he has given us his word and there is objective truth and we're called to live with conviction. So church, can I ask you a really tough question? Here, Here, it's this. Does your theology dictate your experience or does your experience dictate your theology? Does what you believe impact how you live or does the experience of living impact what you believe? Can I give you a couple examples of how this plays out? Right, I've done a lot of premarital counseling as a pastor. And what happens is is I'll be meeting with a couple and they're Christians and they love the Lord and they're like, we know what God's word says. We know that sex was designed as a gift in marriage, and we know that, that uh, to have sex outside of marriage is a sin and dishonoring to God. Like, we understand what God's Word says, but the problem is He's really, really, really cute, and we really love each other, right? They're like, in the practicality, it's really, really hard to stay pure. And I'm like, well, this is a great practice ground. What kind of person are you going to be? Are you going to be a person of conviction where your theology drives how you live, or are you going to let how you feel in the moment be the thing that defines your view of God and your theology? Right? I think most of us would say that we understand that we're called to honor our authorities, that they've been placed there by God, that we're called to be respectful. It's really difficult, though, when you're, have, when you're the one that has the boss who's an idiot, right? And it's like, why do I have to put up with this? He's not fair. He's not kind. He's not loving. It, it, it doesn't seem right. It's difficult. Well, what's going to win out? Your experience or your conviction, right? What about engaging into church? 
hey, look, I know I'm called to be in community and I know I'm called to love one another and view others as greater than myself and care and serve and build others up as they build me up. But when it's Thursday night and I'm tired, right, the, the easy thing to do is say, I'm going to skip small group and just veg out on the couch and watch TV. What wins in that moment? Is it conviction or is it experience? Uh, do me a favor, just bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want to close with this last verse. I just want to say over you, and it's my life verse. It's Galatians 6, 9. It's been such an encouragement to me in, in difficult seasons of life. It says this. Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that they will also reap. But then he gives the church a promise. He says this, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And church, I think one of the challenging parts of following Christ is, is God promises that blessing follows obedience. He says, I see and I will reward your faithfulness and obedience, but a lot of times there's a significant gap between when you sow obedience and when you reap reward. And so what faith looks like is what am I going to do in that gap? Am I going to get discouraged? Am I going to give up? Am I going to quit? Or am I going to live out of conviction and say, I know that God keeps his promises. I know that he's faithful. He has proven it over and over again, not only in history, but in my life. And so I'm going to live out of conviction that his word is true, and I'm going to hang in there. And I just have a sense right now that there's some of you in this room that you need to, to hear that. Like, trust that God will be faithful to keep his word. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the uh, letter of Ephesians. And God, I know that there's some in here who feel like they're stuck. And God, I hope that their hearts would be encouraged and blessed that you have given us a supernatural power and strength, but that the hope is, is not to do it on our own, but to draw near to you. God, would you move in our minds? Would you move in our hearts? Would you allow us to be shaped by you and your word and what you've done for us. Let that be the thing that shapes our lives. We love you and we need your help in this. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.